Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. The week in between Thanksgiving and Advent is always a bit of a weird week. Not exactly time to start a Christmas series, but also too late to continue whatever we did before Thanksgiving. The in-between week. And as I've been thinking about this sort of in-between, I started thinking about what happens before Christmas. We know the Christmas story well. Even if we haven't been in church long, we've most likely heard the story. It seeps into our cultural dialogue. In fact, I was recently in New York and went to go see the Rockettes, and in the middle of their Christmas dances, pop, in comes a nativity scene. We know the Christmas story, but the New Testament doesn't start with the Christmas story. Today, we are starting at the beginning of the Gospels to see what happens and what we learn before the birth. Now, the Gospels all start in different ways. Matthew 1 starts with a genealogy, which, don't worry, we won't be going through all the names. Mark 1 passes over the birth, and we are welcomed to the Gospel with an adult, John the Baptist. John 1 starts with a deeply rich theological exploration of the omnipotence of God, which, even for the nerdy, is a little above and beyond. And so today, we're exploring Luke 1. It's the story before the birth, and from Luke 1, we're going to sit in God's word with the hope of resetting our hearts and minds for the upcoming Christmas season. So here's what happens before the birth in Luke 1. It's a lengthy passage, but let's spend some time in God's word together. Here's what Luke reveals to us in the introduction to his gospel. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of the Abiha, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke introduces us to the main characters of this introductory chapter. He places us in a timeline in the time of Herod. A priest and his wife, who by any other circumstance would have just been another member of the tribe, are the focus of the chapter. Luke includes their lineage, which is something the original hearers of the chapter would have understood to be important. Zechariah is a priest and is from the division of the Abiha tribe. Um, why is this included? Well, in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles 22-25, we read about how David and the people of Israel were preparing for the temple, and part of this preparation was to divide the labor and the groups of people. David, in chapter 23, reconstructs the role of the Levites. And then in 24, it discusses the division of the descendants of Aaron, the eighth grouping or tribe being the group that Zechariah came from. Part of this division was a reconstruction of the labor that the Levites and the priests did. So people hearing this and knowing Zechariah's lineage would better understand who he was and why part of his work was in the temple. And now Elizabeth also gets a little lineage shout out. She is a wife from the daughters of Aaron, which means that she was also a part of this priestly lineage. These two people aren't just random members of some random tribe. They both carry in them lineages that are richly connected to the Exodus, to the Israelites' historical life. Not only did they come from important families, but Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth are devoted to their community and to their community's religious practices. Luke says that they are righteous before God and that they follow all the commands and walk blamelessly. 
They have the imported heritage and they also have an active faith life. And yet, despite all of this, despite being shining stars of religious dedication, they are childless. And so Luke in his chapter starts out with two characters, both blessed and righteous, but bearing the shame of not having a child. Luke continues the chapter, and we're going to skim over a few of the next verses because the story may be a bit familiar to you, and it's a lot of verses, so I'll summarize for you. So Zechariah, the old priest, is on duty. And when David redesigned the roles of priests and Levites, he set up a sort of calendar system so that all the tribes of priests could serve in the holiest area of the temple. And that is where Luke leads us to. In Luke 1, Zechariah saunters into the temple with fear and reverence. And as the prayers erupt around him, he carries the sweet-smelling incense into the temple. Past the drapery, past the guarded areas, he enters and he comes face-to-face with an angel. As happens in large numbers of biblical texts, the angel brings fear. And we read that Zechariah was troubled and fear fell upon him. This isn't the little cherub in your grandmother's painting. This is an awe and fear-invoking angel of the Lord. And what was already an exciting day in Zechariah's vocational life became a miraculous day for the individual life. And we read that Zechariah enters, and in the midst of the stillness and quietness, as fear and incense swirl in the holiest of places, the angel speaks. And the angel tells Zechariah that his prayers have been heard and that his wife will have a baby. And not only will he have a baby, but this baby will bring joy and gladness and a whole bunch of people will rejoice because of this child. Luke writes this about the baby. He says, And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The power of this baby, who, if you didn't know, is a guy we'll meet later in the Gospels whose name is John the Baptist. The thing that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for was going to come to fruition. And not only were they going to have a baby, but this baby was going to be epic. Zechariah heard the news and his mind wandered not to praise and excitement, but rather to questions and then silence. Zechariah, perfumed by the incense and delayed by the encounter with the angel, departed the temple with the promise of fatherhood. And because of his questions to the angel, he was unable to speak. And when his time of service ended, he went home to his wife. And at home, while we don't have the words, uh, we can imagine that they somehow communicated and Elizabeth found out that she would have a baby even though she was old. And Luke writes, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. Elizabeth conceived a miracle, and for five months she kept herself hidden from the world around her. Scholars have differing opinions on why she hid. Some say she hid as a way to show an extension of Zachariah's silence, Some say she hid because she didn't want to interact with the sort of gossip around town. We don't fully understand, fully know why Elizabeth hid, but even in the midst of her hiding, she knew that the Lord had worked in her life in miraculous ways and that the child she hid from the world was a sign of the wonders that God could and can do. This is how Luke starts his gospel, a story of old priestly people being blessed with a baby boy. 
This boy would be John the Baptist who would prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. And this is the story before the birth. And so often we start our Christmas season and Advent reflection with a different miraculous birth, the birth of Jesus in and through Mary and Joseph. And it's obviously important, but before the birth of Jesus, we find God working in and through Elizabeth and Zechariah. It's the perfect story to preempt the Christmas story. And it hopefully reveals some truths about God and about us that will shape our Christmas and Advent season. As I was reflecting on this passage, I was struck by three truths that took place before the birth. The first of these is that before the birth here in Luke 1, God used someone who is considered second to bring about an incredible blessing. There is this saying in the history academic world that winners write history. Maybe you can't say it. And in some ways, that is true. Winners are those who get first, right? History. Winners or rulers or whatever you want to call those at the top certainly seem to be the ones who are remembered, the ones who set the rules, the ones who make the headlines. As some of you know, I'm a bit of a Formula One nerd. And this season, the main driver, the guy who's been winning it all, the one who already won the world championship, even though the season isn't over, it's this guy named Max. Now, Max has a teammate, Chaco Perez, and every team in Formula One has two drivers. Max has won it all. His team has already won the team championship, which is why it was such a surprise when a few races ago, Max wouldn't let Checo ahead of him during a race. Max wasn't winning, and Checo needed to be fifth and not sixth because of the driver's points. But Max, the winner, Max, the first, said no. He literally said over the team radio, I'm not going to do that, meaning he wasn't going to let his teammate, his partner, pass him, even though it was better for the team. Even though the race really didn't matter to Max, he said no. Sometimes winners, the first, can be like that. Sometimes it seems those people in our life who always win, who are always first, just always come out on top. They're constantly number one. Do you have that person in your life? The one who always seems to win, the one who always seems to get the job promotion, who always has an easy time at life. Well, those people are our firsts. And sometimes it feels like those firsts get all the blessings, all the good things. They have the best looks, the most money, the Formula One world title, and they get everything. And the first never fail. They get more and more blessings. Well, the good news is God doesn't work like that. In fact, it often tends to be the opposite. God is a God of those we deem seconds. God gave a stuttering murderer the plans for a great exodus. God led a tiny shepherd overlooked by his brothers to slay a giant. God gave a widowed and penniless woman who was by all means an outsider a field to glean from. God gave a bunch of shepherds who were outcasts and ostracized a first glimpse at a baby. And God gave a group of straggly men, some who had impulse issues, a front row seat to what Jesus has done. And God is a God of those who may not seem like winners. And God uses all of us, even if we consider ourselves second. Luke 1 reveals to us this truth. God is a God of the second. Uh, She was a woman, which we all know historically hasn't always been the best if you want the first seat in the hierarchy. And aside from her gender, Elizabeth came from a line of seconds. Her family and her lineage was a lineage of being second. Aaron was second to Moses, and even though Aaron carried so much importance, his name at times is left out of the story. Elizabeth comes from a line of seconds, and culturally her gender placed her in second, and then you add on that she was also childless in a society where being childless carried shame or for some reflected a sinful person, even though Elizabeth was righteous. She carried this outsider chip. She by all means did everything right, 
and yet she wasn't, by cultural standards, whole. Yet despite this, despite being second, God saw her, and God heard her, and God answered. And God saw her as the beauty she was of being created in his image, bearing the fullness of what it means to be a child of God. And before the, the birth, God chose a second to start the story of Christmas. Our family ministry staff does a weekly devotional, and as we were reading through this passage, all of us were struck by this truth of God, that God chooses and works through the seconds. It touched each of us because while we all carry different stories, we have all felt like Elizabeth at one point. And maybe you or a friend or a family member are carrying this feeling of second or outsider into the holiday season. If that's you, if you feel distant from God or ostracized from others, if you feel like you're being ignored or simply existing in the background, remember that like Elizabeth, you are seen and valued, even if someone or something is calling you second. Before the birth, God worked through someone who was deemed second, and I believe that God is doing the same for some of you now working in the second status of our lives because our God is a God who sees you. Nothing like being told you're second during a sermon, right? Well, God didn't merely work through the second, but before the birth, God responded and God did some miracles. We know that God is a God of miracles. We see them throughout the Bible and we see it in this story. Elizabeth and Zachariah had longed for a baby and they prayed year upon year, month upon month, day upon day for this child. I imagine they grew tired of praying and waiting, as we probably would, and they grew tired of the hope and expectation of getting pregnant. But even in the midst of all of this, they waited and they prayed. Oh, waiting isn't easy. And most of us would say that waiting isn't necessarily enjoyable. If you've ever spent time with a toddler, you know waiting isn't fun. Or if you've ever waited for a ride at Disney, or more likely waited on a new opportunity, you know that waiting can be stressful and challenging. Elizabeth and Zachariah waited and waited and waited, and then God responded. And God always responds, not always in our timeline, in fact, very rarely in our timeline, but God responds. God always responds, not always in the way or matter we would ask for, but God responds. And we see this so clearly in Luke 1. Before the miraculous birth of Jesus, God was working in other people's lives and responding to prayers And I hope that reminder, that truth helps us today. I know because I know you all that some of you have been carrying big prayers around this year. I've been carrying some prayers too. And as we draw to the end of our calendar year, it's easy for us to reflect on those prayers and the truth that so many of them have seemed to go unanswered. And those unanswered prayers or the things that have been prayed over but haven't experienced movement on, they can bring with them a weight or an anchor that sits in our chest. Elizabeth's story represents a small beacon of hope, that as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the birth of Jesus, that we can know that God hears and is responding, even if the momentary response seems to be silence. Luke starts his story before the birth with a reminder of God's response, and his gospel is a reflection of God's action to the waiting. So if you find yourself waiting today, waiting for something small or something big, I hope you remember that God is responding that God is moving, and as we respond by praying for our longings and needs at the before the birth, there was movement and response. And God's response in Luke 1 brought wholeness, completeness, peace, which is our final reflection for Luke's introduction to his gospel. Elizabeth longed and waited and prayed and then, the, and then was made whole. Her response in Luke 1 verses 25, she says this, The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor 
and taken away my disgrace among the people. The response of God changed Elizabeth and Zechariah's life, like anybody, uh, any baby would change someone's life. But it wasn't merely an addition to their family that changed them. God's response restored Elizabeth to her community. The broken bits of who she was and the shame she carried, as Luke told us in the beginning verses of this story, were slowly put back together. It reminds me of this method of pottery repair I learned about from a professor a few years ago. My professor was an artist and practiced a method of Japanese pottery repair called kintsugi, which I am sure I'm messing up the pronunciation. And this ancient method takes broken vessels and pots and pottery and sticks the broken pieces back with gold. Clearly, I'm not an artist and have no idea what the technical names are, but imagine it. Our broken vessels, our torn shirts, our crooked glasses, made whole by using the most precious of metals. The cracks in those pottery pieces are still evident. They still exist, but they are made beautiful because of the gold that fills them. I'm struck by the way that Luke starts the story before the birth with a story of Kintsugi, of God hearing and responding to the brokenness of Elizabeth, filling her life and answering her call with a baby. And this response restores her in her community and fills this void in her life. We know John the Baptist is an integral fulfillment of prophecy and a major part of the ministry of Jesus. But before that, before their births, John's life started as a response that healed. And some of us sit here today like the broken jars of clay that have yet to be put back together. We sit here like Elizabeth, who was first introduced as a woman with lineage and importance, but a woman who wasn't whole. And yet the story of Luke 1 is a story of how, before the birth of Jesus, God filled the cracks and restored Elizabeth. Because our God is a God of restoration, a God who hears the seconds and responds in his time. And this response brings new life, new hope to broken vessels. Before the birth of Jesus, we see God moving in mighty ways. We see promises and hope and purpose for Elizabeth and Zechariah. We tend to start our Christmas celebration with stories of Mary and Joseph and shepherds, um, all of which are important. But Luke 1 starts us with this story of Jesus' relatives. It starts with a story of two old people who God heard, God responded to, and God made whole. I hope that as we prepare ourselves for this Christmas season that you find yourself in the story of Luke 1. That as we prepare for the birth of Jesus, that as we prepare for all the forced family fun and Christmas shopping, that the truths of God being God who hears the second, God being a God who responds and makes whole, fills your life. During the in-person service, we're going to end our time together with communion. It's a little more difficult to do that online, obviously. So instead of communion, I encourage you to spend some time with God during this last song. And reflect on the story of Luke 1 and on Elizabeth and Zachariah, and prepare yourself for the joyous Christmas season ahead. Let's spend some time with God reflecting on what happened before the birth. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, And we hope to see you on Sunday soon.